You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 27th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Dobri Vector, everyone. What? Dobri Vector. Was that a butchering of Italian? No. What that was? Oh, that was last week. This week is Polish. Oh, Good no. evening, everyone. Evan, tell us about today in skepticism. April 30th, 1878, Louis Pasteur lectured at the French Academy of Science in support of his germ theory of disease. Oh, that'll never survive. (laughs) That's a a passing fad. (laughs) Go back to bloodletting. In which he held that many diseases were caused by tiny little organisms. Since he, still met, since he was still met with opposition from some scientists, uh, he called their contrary opinions fatal to medical progress, and he was right. Uh, Pasteur also described ways to prevent infection and provided the skeptics with an experiment in which to prove the theory to themselves. Yeah, it's a good example of you know, a historical case where somebody came up with a revolutionary new idea that was not immediately apparent. There are invisible organisms that you can't see, you know, extremely tiny. It seemed fantastical to uh, people at the time. But the bottom line is you could do experiments to figure out if it's correct or not. And Pasteur had the science on his side. So eventually his ideas won the day. It was called the Swan Neck Flask Experiment. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. Mm -hmm. No, what is that? He proved that fermenting microorganisms would not form in a flask containing fermentable juice until an entry path was created for them. And he was quoted as saying, never will the doctrine of spontaneous generation recover from the mortal blow struck by this simple experiment. Yeah, because people used to believe that bacteria or or any kind of living matter, like even like mice would would form in a box of rags or, you know, in your attic. Yeah, they didn't (laughs) know where people... They didn't know where biology really came from. Yeah, but ultimately, though, spontaneous generation does exist, if you think about it. It just takes a long time. It just takes millions of years, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. So we have a few news items to cover this week. We're going to do a quick interview with Seth Shostak about the future of SETI later on in the show. I guess the big news this week was my appearance on the Dr. Oz show. Ooh. That was pretty big. I must say. Um, so a tornado must have swept you away and knocked yeah. you Yeah, it was just it. A, a couple of weeks ago that we were trash-talking Oz because he won the, uh, the Pegasus Award from the JREF mm-hmm. you know, for, for the uh, pseudoscience in the media, you know, award. Yeah, and that was April 1st, so, and they had called you by, what, 15th or so? Yeah, it was a, so I think about two weeks ago now. It was a, they called me on a Tuesday to find out if I was available on a Friday to do a show. And then the episode was out the following Tuesday. That's that's some impressive turnaround. That yeah. is a fast turnaround. Well, they, they shoot every day, right, Steve? Yes. And there's like four segments per show. So, yeah, they're, they're putting out a lot of material. I was shocked when I got a message from a producer from the Dr. Oz show wanting me to come on the show. Yeah, it's really surprising that they would seek you out, you know, and have you on the show. It's like... It's like the sheep sending an invitation to the wolf to come on in. Yeah. <laughs> and let's talk We're, about things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get media contacts all the time. So at first I wondered, do they know who I am? I mean, do, do Actually, you know who you're talking to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and, and I suppose that in a way it's really like the reverse. It's like the wolves sending the sheep an invite because I was really frightened that you were going to go on there and they were going to just edit the crap out of you. I know. You were very um, skeptical, Rebecca, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, they, you know, just a few weeks ago, they got raked over the coals for, uh, and I'm, by they I mean the Dr. Oz show, they edited a psychologist to make it look as though she was agreeing with psychic medium John Ooh. Edward oh, when yeah. she most definitely did not. So she wrote uh, he's still alive? an angry letter and, well, he's either alive or he's communicating from beyond very effectively. <laughs> to himself, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, he's still he's still on TV and, and still people like Dr. Oz are giving him a platform. So, you know, this had just occurred and there was quite a big oh, I wasn't aware of that. about it among skeptics, at least. So I was, yeah, I was worried that regardless of how intelligent and and well-spoken Steve could be on the show, editors can always make you look like an idiot. Yeah, oh, yeah. Th- this is true. I mean, the, the the power of the editing room is is almost unlimited. So, I mean, you could mitigate it a little bit. You have to speak in self-contained sound bites that it would be very difficult to take out of context. Um, and you, you have to very, you know, very carefully control just how you're presented. But you're still at the mercy of the editor. So yeah, there was there was a fast and furious debate, you know, among us and among, you know, my science-based medicine colleagues about whether or not I should even do it. But you know, I quickly came to the conclusion that it's a risk, but it's an opportunity we just can't pass up, and, and we don't want to give them the the ability to say that we refused, you know, to go on the show. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Yeah. So we mm-hmm. yeah we we took the risk, and I think in the end it paid off. Um, actually, the thing that most people were worried about, the editing, was actually not bad. They, I think because they filmed only a little bit more than the length of the segment itself, so there wasn't that much room for editing. And I could see where they you know, nipped and tucked here and there, but they didn't significantly change the discussion. I hope they were the, really frustrated in that editing room thinking, damn, <laughs> damn, we only have this much, we only have this much footage, and we, oh, we got to use that quote, oh. darn it. Well, the, the thing is, when I was watching it, and I... I, you know, I posted it on Skeptic and a few people made a comment to the effect of, was there bad editing in that when they cut to Steve, he's nodding when Dr. Oz is saying things. And it occurred to me that, you know, if you ever, if, if you're ever a skeptic on one of these shows, don't nod. Don't ever say <laughs> yeah. anything in the affirmative because <laughs> they can always edit. Just, just look aghast at every opportunity. <laughs> I noticed that they used the same head nod that Steve did from different angles. Mm. For editing, yeah. and at one point, the woman, uh, the woman that was in the audience that Doctor Oz asked to give nutritional yeah. information about so natural she, standards. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she was yeah. saying that you know, ten years ago we didn't know what we were talking about, but now we do because of all this mountain of research that that's been done. And they they click over to Steve, and you know he's doing the same nod that he did <laughs> two minutes ago, but. I think I know Steve well enough to notice that, but it looked like the same exact everything. But whatever, it doesn't matter. I think they that did was a, fair a minor job. thing. Yeah, maybe they they accentuated the head nodding a bit. That's I think that's a minor thing. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that I was worried about turned out to be the big problem, and that was that Oz from the get go controlled the framing of the discussion and the flow mm-hmm. of the discussion. 
you know, so I knew I wasn't going to be able yeah. to answer every, every point that was being raised. And of course, it was going to be, let's talk about why alternative medicine is so wonderful and anyone who doubts it you know, is a jerk. And that was basically the framing of the segment. Yes, yeah, Steve, what exactly are you afraid of? That was the initial framing. Yeah, that was, you know, what, why are some doctors afraid of alternative medicine? So why are you afraid, yeah, Steve? Steve? Tell us. Yeah, well, let me back up a little bit. So there, there's been some discussion as to what degree Dr. Oz is just pandering for the audience, for ratings or whatever. You know, how, to what degree has he sold his soul? Versus, you know, is he actually now a true believer in the whole alternative medicine thing? On, on this show, at, at least he was forced to plant his flag in one camp or the other. Mm-hmm. And and he planted it firmly in the middle of Wooville. You know, he, he <laughs> this was a confrontation between the defenders of science based medicine and the promoters of essentially unscientific medicine. And he absolutely took the unscientific side. He hit almost every erogenous zone of the pro cam contingent. And what is clear is that he is clearly very deeply steeped in the. Uh, pro-alt-med propaganda because his framing was brilliant from that, from that perspective. You know, it was almost Orwellian in its, in its clever deception. So let me, so he sets it up as, and of course you could watch the segments, they're on, you know, the Oz website and it's on YouTube as well. If you just go to the articles on either science-based medicine or neurological, you'll see the links to the video so that you can watch it. If you want to watch it first, you can play a good game of name, that logical fallacy. But uh, so the setup was alternative medicine is this wonderful thing. It's ancient wisdom. It's getting more popular. But there are these holdouts, to use that term holdout, that are afraid of alternative medicine. What are they afraid of? So you're in the minority. Yeah, we're the holdouts. Mm-hmm. So the, think about that. That's in just a few words, he made so many implied claims there that, first of all, that alternative medicine is inevitable, that its acceptance is growing and inevitable. That's what a holdout is, right? Like we're the mm-hmm. final people who are just too stubborn to see how brilliant it is. The other, th- the other big framing thing he did, which he did right at the beginning, was that alternative medicine is empowering. This is a grassroots empowering movement by the little people against entrenched, arrogant doctors. Uh, except you know those doctors who are not open-minded enough to embrace it. Right? Would, would that, you even that, would you even call it grassroots anymore? I think they're they're big big money slick. I mean, I don't see them as Bob. This is Bob, all he's just BS. talking about. It's, he's this is Doctor Oz's spin on what's going on. Yeah, I know, but this that, is the that, illusion that specifically rankled me when he said that. I was like, you got to be kidding! Grassroots, yeah. come on. No, it's big. It's big industry now. I mean, you know, there's the supplement industry is massive. It's there's a lot of overlap with you know the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, you know, there. But Steve, are, you did do a good job of getting that into the conversation. You actually yeah. did mention that, and I thought that was a really great point. Yeah, I was. I tried to deflect as much as I could. I mean, you gave a bit of a gish gallop of nonsense, so I could only you know pick and choose a few points. I made the point that you know alternative medicine is kind of a false category. It distracts from the the only real issue is does does this stuff work or not? Here's the thing, though. Can we just briefly get back to the idea of it being empowering? Because yeah. you know when he said that, a part of me kind of has to agree with him in a way, but it's. I don't think it's quite what he means. I, I get the idea of it being empowering in, he in means the sense empowering that, in a good way. Well, yeah, what I'm saying is that it is empowering in a good way in 
psychologically speaking, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person who, you know, I don't even like going to the salon. I do my hair, at, like I cut my own hair. I dye my own hair because, you know, it's fun. And, and also because it makes me feel like I'm doing something, like I've learned something, like I figured something out for myself and I'm in control of my own body. And I completely understand how a person would feel, you know, if you, uh, in, instead of going to a doctor or to the hospital where, you know, someone else is doing all of the work, someone else is doing the diagnosing and the treatment and it, the treatment is just some little white pill and you don't know what's in it. That can be, you know, a, a bit of a dehumanizing experience. And a lot of doctors, you know, we've talked about this in the past, how doctors who are doing real medicine uh, don't often have the same kind of time that alt-med practitioners have to spend with patients and to give them the warm fuzzies. So you compare that experience with this idea of something's wrong with me. I can go on the internet. I can diagnose it myself. And look at this. I can solve it just by switching to a healthier diet, like this broccoli and this cauliflower, that's going to cure my disease because the internet told me so. And and there's something that does feel really good about doing that, regardless of, of how it impacts your health. Like it just feels good to be doing something for yourself that, you know, you are in complete yeah. control of. And that's the definition of empowering. But the the problem is that the solution that you come upon when it when that's actually based on on pseudoscience and on on cons you know if i if i screw up my hair at home that's fine because it's just hair but you know when somebody is is diagnosing themselves and treating themselves there can be very serious consequences so i i feel like you can you do get a sense of empowerment from it yes but that doesn't make it right yeah, so of course there there are psychological appeals to this. This is the bait and switch of alternative medicine. So it presents itself as empowering. It presents itself as part of healthcare freedom. We just want to give you the freedom to make decisions for yourself and to take charge of your own health. It's patient-centered. It's also individualized. He raised that point as well. They they claim that it's individualized medicine and that it's uh, natural, that it's, you know, it's of the people, grassroots, not corporate or, in, or industrial, uh, that it's non-invasive, it's ancient. You know, these, this is all bullshit, though. So each yeah. one of those points is just marketing hype used to hide the real truth, which is that these are a bunch of pre-scientific or pseudoscientific, or discarded, or just untested or unproven modalities, some even mutually exclusive in terms of their underlying philosophy and claims, that are sort of brought together under this big umbrella, and that are being marketed with deception, with misinformation, but that are couched in these pleasant-sounding, psychologically appealing notions of empowerment and natural and whatever. So that's, that's the marketing hype surrounding this big, giant ball of BS, and, and that's what Dr. Oz was playing into. But Steve, you've said in the past that you think Dr. Oz is on the fence when it comes to – you think to a certain degree he believes in this stuff. But what you just listed for us, I think, is actually very good proof – that either Dr. Oz is having what he says written for him or that he knows damn well what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the script that he followed was, 
was very precise and again hit all of the propaganda points or most of them of the pro camp movement. So again, either he's very steeped in that propaganda or it was written by people who are. Well, did he him. let down his guard at all in the moments when the cameras weren't on? Oh, I had no interaction with him when the, in moments when the cameras weren't on. Really? Yeah, I mean, he really totally limited his interaction with me. We had very, very brief, um, just technical kind of practice on the stage. But then uh, when I was on stage, we were filming, and that was it. And then I was ushered off at the end, and I never saw him again. The, the no. producer even, I mean, it was a little odd, and the producer even, like, apologetically said, you know, Dr. Oz doesn't like to talk to guests before the show because he wants it to be natural and organic on stage. Fine, whatever. I could mm-hmm. see that. But still, the bottom line was he didn't say boo to me outside of our interaction on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprised. Not I'm surprised. not surprised. I mean, I don't, I'm not surprised that anybody that has a TV show would do that. Well, yeah, and I think a part of that could be not wanting to tip his hand if he really doesn't feel the way that he feels on his TV show. I'm not saying that, you know, I don't know one way or the other. It doesn't matter anymore. He planted his flag. He, he, yep, uh, previously, he would let his guests, you know, make all these points and he would just accept it. And you mm-hmm. wonder, okay, so he's just being uncritical and allowing them to do that. But now, because right. it was you know, kind of a confrontation between his critics from science-based medicine and, and what he's been doing, he absolutely took a stand and said, the science basically is optional. It's not everything. So he tried to do the uh, the whole you can't test my beliefs with your science bit. Uh, mm-hmm. So at first he tried to say there's evidence to support a lot of this. And, you know, I made the point that, there, you know, a lot of, say, herbs, once they do get tested, they don't work for the, the ways that they're being marketed. You know, ginkgo biloba and echinacea don't work for the reasons that they're marketed for. Um, I also made the point that we, when the conversation came to acupuncture, that the literature, in fact, shows that acupuncture doesn't work. Um, so, and, it, and it was also, you corrected them, which I thought was fantastic, when um, Dr. Oz, or maybe it was the other guest, said something about you steadfastly denying that acupuncture works, and you said... No, it's just that the literature shows us that, you know, it probably doesn't. Yeah, no, Oz, he, he spent the whole show arguing against straw men that he yeah. had pre-configured. Not, he wasn't responding to what I was actually saying. So, yeah, he said that my position was that acupuncture can't possibly work, which I didn't say. I mean, I think right. that would have been true if we were talking about homeopathy, say, but it it's just doesn't happen to be true with acupuncture. I think it's very implausible, but I wouldn't say it's impossible that there could be some effect. You're actually doing something, right? You're sticking needles right. through the skin. He also said that, uh, I said it wasn't studied. I never said it wasn't studied. He said it has been studied and it showed not that it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, but mm. then, then he shifted to, yeah, but science doesn't know how to test acupuncture why right. why what's so magical about science that exactly yeah, I like that he, it, he gave no elaboration yeah. on that at all yeah was, it was yeah. just oh you're being dismissive how can you dismiss a billion people who use that first of all it's totally overblown you know they actually the chinese are going more and more towards science-based medicine they look at acupuncture as peasant medicine i mean that's what that's for the masses who can't afford real medicine. And anyway, it's irrelevant. Yes, a billion people could be wrong. Billi- billions of people could be wrong for thousands of years about things if they're not looking at it in a scientific or a systematic way. Uh, so he right, made you the- brought up bloodletting, which yeah, I thought was a yeah. Yeah, good point. He made the argument for popularity. Yeah, the bloodletting thing uh, is, is a good argument against that. Uh, but it's, it's just, you know, your science can't test my woo. That is special pleading. It's that's the whole Bigfoot is invisible and that's why you can't see him. It's 
you know, psychic powers don't work when skeptics in the room. It's, you mm-hmm. know, UFOs are always smart enough to stay right at the edge of our ability to detect right. them. If there's, know, a biolo- just- if there's a biological effect, you, by definition, it's detectable. Yeah, exactly. it's total, total BS. And he's conflating, which he does a lot, again, very fuzzy thinking all the way through, the notion of understanding how something works with just, with just asking the question, does it work? We're very good at figuring out if something works. We've been mm-hmm. doing that for over 100 years now. We have very sophisticated much, much clinical trials. Yeah. Well, we, how, how we, we've been doing that for the past several millennia. We knew, you know, humans knew that, that the bark from a tree made your headaches go away, you know, years before we figured out a whole hell of a lot of other stuff about modern medicine. But what Steve's but, yeah. talking about is we're, we're observing things working on a smaller and smaller scale all the time. We're understanding the actual physiological effects of things, even though we may not know exactly why it's happening. Yeah, so I mean, the clinical trial, I mean, the, the, most historians agree it goes back to the study of vitamin C and scurvy. Which I think right. was about 300 years ago. But you know, with the technology of doing clinical trials, it's still not perfect, and we spend a lot of time talking about bad clinical trials. But we know how to design a well-controlled, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. There actually have been very sophisticated uh, clinical trials of acupuncture with placebo acupuncture and sham acupuncture, and it all shows the best studies of acupuncture show it doesn't work for anything. And he has absolutely no basis to say that we don't know how to test acupuncture. We have acupuncturists who are designing very sophisticated trials of acupuncture, and it doesn't work. So it's just utter BS. I concluded after watching the video a couple of times today, and I I wrote a small blog entry about some of my opinions about what I saw. But one of the things that I felt was that Dr. Oz was basically saying any any, um, research that's done that supports acupuncture was good research and anything yeah. that doesn't was bad research yeah it's head I, I, I characterize that as heads i win tails i win if it's positive it's works science is wonderful mm-hmm. if it's negative oh science doesn't work you can't test my claims yeah but steve <laughs> yeah. you gotta admit you really have to admit that they really got you though when they claim that uh that diet and exercise work Where's your god now you know, that that's part of the, again another sort of cam strategy of Making CAM such a big umbrella and then trying to rebrand or claim that things like diet and exercise are alternative. Therefore, alternative medicine is legitimate. You know, and then, that's spo- then the other really nonsensical stuff is supposed to ride on the coattails of diet and exercise. Disgusting. But I made the point. Yeah, diet and exercise, what is alternative about that? That's been studied scientifically for decades. This is part of mainstream scientific medicine. It's- yeah, I mean that was as absurd as them saying, you know, regular breathing is very healthy. Yeah, that's or that's Orwellian. That is just absolutely. Right. Yeah. That's just total newspeak. It's eat, just trying eat food to control, every day. control your control thinking and ideas through language. It it really is quite despicable. So here is my my emotional reaction to watching Steve on the show. I was really excited to hear that Steve got on Oz's show. Um, I was a little concerned agreeing with Rebecca last week. I, I was worried that there was going to be um, you know the unknown factor of editing and. I felt like trying to even crack open this can in 15 minutes was just an epic waste of time. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you barely even get warmed up and it's over and they, you know, it was just too cookie cutter, too, you know, um, you know, wife waiting at the door with a drink type of thing. Like everything's great, huh. perfect. It's, you know, it just was not well, even my, my sense was that Oz wanted an opportunity to respond to his critics to to 
give his spiel, and I was just the sacrificial lamb. He just needed somebody mm-hmm. to do it too, and that was me. Yeah. Right? And because and he had his you – know, he framed the discussion. He had the points he wanted to make. He made them. He wasn't responding to what I was saying. At the end, he gave himself a nice long epilogue that I had no opportunity to respond to. Oh, yeah. Where he made all of his points and wrapped it all up. And then he tried to apologize to me at the end off camera. He said, we ran out of time. You know, that's why I had to cut it. Yeah, right. You gave yourself a a really nice long, you know, closure. It would have been classy of him to give me an opportunity to, you know, to make some closing remarks or at least address something. something I mean, honestly, Steve, he didn't even take the time to learn how to pronounce your last name. That's true. Yeah, what was that about? So, Dr. Novella. Novella. Are you okay, Dr. You know, What's wrong with you? Well, I've never, that's the first time I've seen his show, and I just assumed that he was really just a bad speaker. Like, yeah, he like kind really of mumbled. ineloquent. Yeah. Ineloquent? Is that a word? Non-eloquent? Elocution. Just... <laughs> well, Steve, let me, let me continue a little bit with, with some of my thoughts after okay. watching the show today. Um, the, the depressing side of it was, like, I didn't really get excited about Steve being on the show because I, I think I, I kind of knew what was going to go on here, like what Steve just described as it was basically Steve was a mechanism for Dr. Oz to to do what he wanted to do. Um, I didn't like how he talked down to his audience. He'd be like, now the physicians, these are your doctors. And he's like talking to them like they right. don't even know what the word physician means. And he did that a couple of times and I thought that was really strange, but Maybe he knew that he needs to talk to his audience that way because, you know, he knows who his audience is and he's, you know, he's catering what he does and says to them, which I found a little weird and disturbing. And the other thing was, you know, Steve gets on the show and super expensive set. Everything looked awesome. You know, and I'm like, wow, he's on, you know, you got Oprah, you got Dr. Oz, you got these two huge industries of pseudoscience against Steve, who hosts a very popular science podcast, but we're nothing compared to them. There's yeah, no chance. And I got very, yeah, yeah, I got very depressed afterwards. I really was like, man, you know, it doesn't even matter. Like, it doesn't phase the world that Steve got on the Oz show. And well, you know, again, this is, was part of the debate we had ahead of time. Again, there was I never had any delusion that I was going to have an opportunity to actually enter into a fair debate or discussion or that I was going to be given the opportunity to win on points or anything. My goal was just to be calm and reasonable and so that people come away at least with the, the gestalt that, okay, there are reasonable people on the other side who have some concerns about this. Maybe I can look, more, look into that more. I also found throughout this process that from talking to just random people you know, that are, are not, not skeptics, that a lot of Dr. Oz's fans are not necessarily fans of his promotion of alternative medicine. They just like his regular medical stuff that he talks about. Mm-hmm. And then when he kind of goes off the rails on alternative medicine, they, they just you know, fluff that off, but they're not really buying it. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're speaking to a, a really key group, I think. And setting aside, if, if we set aside any worries over what happens in the editing room, then it's a thousand times more helpful for a skeptic to go on a show like Dr. Oz than to go on a show like Mythbusters, even though yeah. the latter would probably be a lot more fun. And, you know, we would uh, probably have a really good time blowing things up. But we would be speaking to the same audience that we're speaking to now. And we don't, I mean, how often do you get a chance to speak to such an enormous 
audience, yeah. And not, three million and people a week, I believe. Yeah. Yes. No, we had to yeah, do it. These we had to do it. And these aren't true believers, you know? These are normal human beings. Yeah, absolutely. My mother yeah. watches and the show. She's not an idiot. She likes Dr. Oz because he's, like, friendly and gives her medical advice that she feels is reliable. That's so, the danger. That's the real danger because Oz is mixing up the good stuff with the bad stuff yeah. and the average viewer has no way to distinguish or not, no good way to distinguish from Oz alone what is correct and what's not. So, so Steve, you being on that program gives people some clarity to that. They say, aha, okay, there is a difference yeah. here and now they can maybe make that distinction better. Just to wrap this up, the other, the other last tidbit is that uh, – let me say two things. One is that – I think more than any other thing for me personally, the the best thing about this, it was kind of fun to have like the skeptical movement rally around me. You know what I mean? I kind of like know what Simon Singh. <laughs> you were Sing- a star. We well, did. I mean, it was just it was it was just kind because of, you know everyone sort of came out of the woodwork. You know, both you know our friends that we know plus just you know people who listen to the show to be very supportive. And the, you know, a point that I made to a lot of them was you know. Po- Part of my calculation about whether or not to go on the Oz show was knowing that I was backed up by a whole community, you know, of rational, you know, science friendly people. And I knew that whatever happened, we would see this as something that we're all doing to try to promote science and we would make the best of it together. And that, so that was just a good feeling, you know, to, and like, for example, Phil Clay was like, hey, what can I do for you guys? <laughs> okay, you know, Phil offered to, you know, to blog about it. Of course, he's a very popular blog and to tweet about it and, and to, you know, to help. Uh, whatever we, we want to cool. get out of this, and you know, Richard Saunders contacted me, and of course, you know, the JREF is being very, very supportive, but also just a lot of listeners. So that was, I think, it just it, it reinforced for me that we are, are part of a very large community that you know does band together around things like this. We are all on the same side, fi- side fighting the good fight, and and we do rally around each other when things like this happen. So that was good, and and. The final thing is that I, I did try to make an offer to Oz, although I didn't get to ask him directly. I did try pass it through his producer to uh, to come on the SGU. Um, yeah. I couldn't make it like, all right, I'll go on your show if you come on mine. But it was more like just as a courtesy. Yes, I'm sure I'm willing to come on your show into the lion's den, as it were. And uh, but and but I offer if you know Dr. Oz wants to continue this conversation. You know, we we'll give him a very long, unedited format to have a very you know open and uh, and fair uh, discussion about these issues. So he has an open invitation. I've made it publicly on both blogs. We're making it publicly again here. Again, Phil Plate and other people are starting are, are um, spearheading a tweet campaign to to make this offer to him over Twitter because he does have a Twitter account and to just try to bring as much pressure to bear as possible to get him to do that. If he agrees, that will be epic. If he refuses, at least we could say what's he afraid of, what's he scared of that he won't he won't come. I went to his show. He why won't he come on? my yeah. show what else can yeah, we do? we'll frame it as why are you why are you afraid of science-based medicine doctor <laughs> <laughs> right ah, I, like I don't it. even i don't think it's fear at all guys i think if we take a real look at it i mean why would he come on a podcast like this he has nothing to gain and everything you know, to it, lose. It, it's possible jay it's just possible that maybe he still cares a little bit about mm-hmm. his reputation among academia and his colleagues. He's got maybe, ego, that's for sure. Maybe. Well, I think maybe. he must because of, well, first of all, he's had you on a show. And and also, he I can't remember offhand, but at one point he did say something about 
my colleagues in the medical industry yeah, or something. And it really struck me because I, it, I suddenly just had this flash like, Oh my God, that's right. You're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like he I know it's in the name terrible. of the show and everything, but yeah, you know, no, I, was, I, yeah. I think I honestly think he was stung by our criticism and this show flowed out of that. That was my impression. Of, so he has an ego. Uh, so we'll see. You never know. But so yeah, you never know. Yeah, when you he know, said colleagues, I was thinking of guys twirling their mustaches. But <laughs> <laughs> thinking of Deepak Chopra yeah, and those guys selling snake yeah. oil on the side. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Now that you say it, Steve, he did join the ranks, and uh, and regardless, even if he is a good person, which you know he probably is a good guy. But the bottom line is, is that he's doing the public a serious amount of damage, and we have to do something about it. Oh yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's move on. We do have a few other uh, news items to get to. I know this is fun to talk about. But uh, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about the latest attempt at pushing creationism into te- into Texas public schools. Yeah. Did you guys think that whole thing was over? Because no, no. it'll so, never be over. Just, yeah, it just, reset, just resets. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the NCSE National Center for Science Education, which uh, is run by Jeannie Scott, who we interviewed Jeannie. a few weeks ago at Nexus which you will hear one day, NCSE and the Texas Freedom Network, which is uh, not some birther sort of uh, movement (laughs) organization as it sounds. Uh, It's actually a group that's dedicated to keeping creationism out of Texas. Um, They've uh, released a press release recently that said that the Texas Education Agency has made available on its website materials that include intelligent design slash creationist propaganda. And, you know, you can, you can go look at these things. They're really, they're just terribly done, first of all, just speaking from a pure aesthetics standpoint, but they're, they're all web materials that are meant to aid students and teachers. And they they look kind of like PowerPoint presentations as done by the stupidest um, middle management executive in your organization. Just imagine that person trying to cobble together a PowerPoint. Uh, this is what has been presented as something for the state uh, school board to approve for Texas science classrooms. They include not only many typos, and grammatical errors, but also phrases such as life on earth is the result of intelligent causes and students should go home with the understanding that a new paradigm of explaining life's origins is emerging from the failed attempts of naturalistic scenarios. This new way of thinking is predicated upon the hypothesis that intelligent input is necessary for life's origins. Uh, basically, they're not even hiding it. Um, no. You know, in sometimes these uh, the creationists try to sneak in some some tricky language that you might not realize at first glance is is a stepping stone towards teaching creationism in schools. But in this case, they are just out and out saying that there are two theories. One is uh, evolution, and the other is intelligent design. If you go on to uh, Texas Freedom Network's uh, website, tfn.org. They have the slides available for you to take a look at, and they are amazing. Um, one of my favorites, though, 
presents uh, the null hypothesis of the origin of life on Earth, and then it splits off into the two options. One is origin of life is a product of time, matter, and chance, which is described as non-intelligent causes, matter in parentheses. And on the other side, origin of life is not a product of time, matter, and chance, which is intelligent causes, and in parentheses, mind. So, and, and it's labeled two possibilities for the origin of life. So your two possibilities are mind or matter. Which one, uh, which one just wins, you know, mind over yeah. matter? That's <laughs> oh, clever. That's, that's um, sort of, but not really. Yeah, so they've, <laughs> they've, they've, they've rebranded even evolution to make it sound dumber and also make it sound, make it use their language, non-intelligent causes, as opposed to abiogenesis and, you know, evolutionary natural theory. Natural causes, yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty ridiculous. And like I said, it's just poorly done. It's, it's, there's typos. Um, and in July, there's going to be a vote on whether or not this okay. will, uh, be approved for the education of millions of kids in Texas. So luckily we've got groups like NCSC and TFN fighting against this crap. Yeah. You really have to be vigilant. I mean, cause they're going to try to sneak it in every step of the process. You know, yep. they're just, yeah, here's just trying to sneak in some creationist material on, on some committee vote. You know, it's, this is a, this would be totally under the radar if they, these guys weren't keeping an eye on it. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, we've always talked about the textbook issue with Texas School Board um, basically approving textbooks and having those textbooks then approved for use throughout the country just because of Texas, Texas's buying power. But... Uh, the Texas the 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 textbook issue has now passed, and so what do they turn to? Well, now they turn to these web tools, these terrible mm-hmm. PowerPoint things for teachers to show their their students that include blatant non-science propaganda. Well, this is the one-two punch now that I think they're trying to do. They're trying to get these laws passed in various states where that allow teachers to bring in extra material. And then they provide the extra material with the creationist and intelligent design propaganda. Yeah, you right. know, it's as, as if, oh, you know, we can't like put teachers in a straitjacket. They should be allowed, you know, they should have the freedom, the academic freedom, you know, to, to yeah. use these extra materials. But it's all just a way of creating another pathway that they could then shove creationist propaganda uh, into the public school classrooms. To, so. me it, to me, it sounds like they're smuggling contraband into the schools and yeah, it's, it's not a, not that's a bad analogy. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly what they're they're attempting to do. And it's funny because it's what, uh, you know, I used to hear growing up that um, Bibles were banned in schools. Those were the, the things that my, my pastors would, would tell me, that the secularists are... Uh, are making it illegal for kids to have Bibles in schools. So they, they've already got this built-in martyr complex yeah. about it. And so, yeah, they, they really push for this idea of academic freedom. And, you know, I'm sure today you'll still find plenty of people who are like me who believe 
idiotic propaganda like you know they're just trying to stop people from practicing their religion or from practicing their beliefs they're trying to you know just have it be their way only uh you know this anti-religion yeah. thing and it's it's sad because you know there there are plenty of religious people who understand evolution and understand that it's a fact um and it yeah. has nothing to do with you know, trying to stamp out anyone's religion or trying to affect their their beliefs. It just has to do with teaching good science to kids in our science classrooms. There's a similarity between this and um, the alt-med industry and the people driving it. I mean, they, they try to come across as the underdog and that the big man is trying to keep them down and all that. And uh, that theme actually works. People identify with that. For some reason, people have a connection to that type of thinking. And I f it's just frustrating when, from where I'm sitting, I can clearly see that this is definitely a huge mistake. But, you know, the, if anything, the public relies on policies like this for their children. You know, their children's education is relying on these decisions that get made. And most people don't even know how serious it is. Yeah, I was going to make that same point, Jay, that this is the whole freedom movement is very similar. I mean, I've actually written directly comparing healthcare freedom with academic freedom, you know, and the way that they're being used to promote unscientific notions. Uh, it, and it is a very effective strategy, and, and it's one that's hard to combat because people, you know, especially in the United States, you know, respond really positively to the notion of, I'm just trying to defend your freedom, you know, that, that – yeah sort of resonates mm -hmm. immediately unless until you know that it's part of this a very insidious deliberate campaign to water down scientific standards and to sneak things under the radar it's scary I, it really is scary because you've got you know this this incredibly effective idea of ac academic freedom and with their tenacity it just makes me think that man how are we going to fight this eventually it seems when i'm feeling all pessimistic that they're going to slip this stuff in Alternative medicine is already spreading like wildfire throughout the uh, the medical schools, and in in Texas, I mean, once they get this kind of stuff through Texas, you know, it's just gonna it's just gonna spread like a virus everywhere else. If, if I can mix my metaphors, um, it's just sometimes I just feel like, damn, it's like inevitable. It pisses me off. Well, That's right, you know, it's, they, it ignorance is self propagating. So yeah, if if the creationists do manage to get something like this into schools, then. Yeah, it really could be a huge problem because it's only going to create more creationists who are going to try harder. But the fact is, you know, Genie and and not just NCSE, but you know, tons of different organizations are fighting really hard to to keep it out. And I think they're doing a, a good job so thank, far. Thank I mean, Darwin catching, for that. So far, yeah, yeah, so far. But the creationists only need to succeed a couple times in order to have that, you yeah. know, sort of crack well, in the dam. They've effect. already had a lot of successes in terms of actually watering down the teaching of evolution, and you know, there, a lot of t science teachers in this country, despite the laws, are teaching creationism or just not doing a good job of teaching evolution because they've made it controversial. Um, there, where they consistently lose is legally is in the right. courts because we have yeah. we have a constitution. We have a separation of church and state amendment, and the uh, the legal precedence is very clear. You can't teach religion in the public schools, yeah. period. So that's at least we have that to fall back on. Right. So that's, far, that's been working. And that's been great. That's been great. But, all, but, don't, but the selective pressure we're putting on them in this country, yeah. we're evolving them <laughs> yeah. at an incredible rate. And it's, and it's fascinating to, you know, in a really nasty way to see them kind of go to other countries with this unsophisticated ecosystem and then they're like yeah they just spread like rabbits in australia you know 
Yeah, well, they're, yeah. they're invasive species in other ecosystems that don't have the, in the resistance that we've developed here. <laughs> that, that, I like that's that. what I said. Yeah, okay. I like that. Let, let's go on. Uh, Evan, quickly, you're going to tell us about a rumor that the Higgs boson might have been discovered at the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. Now, everyone raise your hand if you think that that rumor is actually true. Uh, let's see. Good. Nobody I'm raising put their my hand. hand up. It could be. Oh. It could be. Yeah. <laughs> could, could be true. Be. It's but uh, no. No, they say it's premature. It's premature Experts is the right word, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So this is uh, rampant speculation, uh, which uh, came about because a 30-page uh, scientific note from Atlas, which is a 3,000-member organization of scientists, was leaked anonymously onto the web last week. And a few sentences stood out that some people took to mean that uh, we may have found the God particle, the Higgs boson. Um, a spokesperson for that group called the reference probably nothing and just part of the normal conversation and ebb and flow that takes place on a regular basis between these you know thousands of people who are collectively sort of working on this problem. Um, in fact, uh, Atlas spokesperson Fabiola Gionati uh, was asked about the rumor, and she said that these kinds of signals frequently appear during data analysis and they're later falsified as more detailed scrutiny comes about so basically they saw something mm -hmm. and they're not sure what they saw right they're analyzing it as they should <laughs> and they should getting the you know the analysis from lots of different people i'm sure in lots of different departments and all it took was just you know a little a, a word or two or a sentence or two for this rumor to catch what like wildfire basically with the internet thank you internet and there you go well the um the rumor started you know, started catching on uh, because someone posted it as a comment on the uh, the physics blog, not even wrong. Um, and and it was interesting to see it spread from there. And they've been doing a good job, I think, of... Um, like It's funny, I think, to see a science blog, like a hard science blog, get really gossipy. And they admit it and they revel in it that <laughs> this is like TMZ to them you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah it's it yeah the uh the other thing the, another reason why i think this was popular is that um and, and i'm not privy to some a lot these other anomalies that that pop up and then get squashed down but this one um this one seemed to me especially interesting because not only was there an anomaly discovered that that kind of seemed like it uh, could be the higgs boson itself but there's also uh, many more events than the standard model predicted happening during during this uh during this recording, and um, and so this also so this points not only to the potential discovery of the Higgs boson, but also new physics because the standard model was not predicting any that you know the uh, the plethora of events that were there. So it's kind of to me it seems like a, kind of like a double whammy. But the whole idea of it being premature, like yeah, it's even beyond premature because. The way these scientists work in this specific facility is that they've got us like these subgroups of scientists and, and this subgroup of scientists kind of like had this note, this 30 page note describing this event. And normally what would happen is you would take this and they would, they would kind of, you know, bandy it about each other and talk about it. And then if it survived this, that first test, it would, it would go to the expanded, the outer group of scientists and they would kind of like talk about it for a while. And then if it survived that test, then it would go to external, you know, external scientists to, to verify it, and uh, so so this is like the, the very very first stage, and and it, like like Evan said, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Chances are it's gonna it's gonna get it's gonna disappear, and we're not gonna hear about it anymore. Especially when you consider other was it the Tevatron? I think 
actually studied a very similar scenario to this one, and they didn't really find anything. In you know the, the situation in the experimental right. setup was very very similar. They didn't see anything in this in this you know regime. Um, so uh, chances are seem fairly overwhelming that uh, that this will amount to nothing. Evan, it's time for who's that noisy? It is. It's time to play last week's who's that noisy. Let's get right to it. The Zeppelin II, the search for which has boggled the great mind. So, the Zeppelin tube. Because I, I, I had never heard of uh, of these people before the... Fire Sign Theater. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The Fire Sign Theater troupe, a comedy troupe, that made albums in the 1970s. This was just one of their... Uh, Rebecca, what again? What was the uh, the Rat of Sumatra? Uh, yeah, I think that's it, and uh, one of our listeners uh, brought that little clip to our attention. Listener Kevin Elskin from Upper St. Clair, Pennsylvania, sent us that clip, so thank you very much for that. Uh, listener Jeff Westfall was the first one to email in correctly, first one to guess correctly that that was, uh, that was the Firesign Theater group, so well done, Jeff. What do you got for this week, Ev? Here is this week's Who's That Noisy? Sounds like a wheelbarrow that needs oil, right? <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> it could be one of many, many, oil many things. Oil can. Nobody loves a Charlie in the box. We'll get to <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So that's, what, that's, what, that's what Charlie's doing in that box. <laughs> that's why he needs the oil can. <laughs> I think we're mixing up our shows here. But uh, go ahead, uh, post it on the uh, message board. Send us an email. Let us know. Good luck, everybody. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. (laughs) Well, uh, let's go on with our interview. (laughs) We are joined now by Seth Shostak. Seth, welcome back to the Skeptic's Guide. It's a pleasure to be here. And Seth, you you work with the uh, SETI Institute, and we asked you to come on because we heard a bit of disturbing news that we'd like you to give us the the inside dope on, that there's some funding problems at the SETI Institute. Can you tell us about that? Well, there are. uh, With the Allen Telescope Array, so that's an instrument that we use for our SETI programs. I I should perhaps uh, say right up front here, the SETI Institute, of course, does more than just SETI, uh, even though that's the name of the institute. We do a lot of what's called astrobiology research. So we have uh, a lot of scientists. In fact, the majority of our scientists are doing uh, astrobiology, which is to say they're interested in the possibility of life on Mars or maybe the outer solar system, things like that. Uh, They are, of course, not users of the Allen Telescope Array. The Allen Telescope Array is used for our SETI uh, searches, and that's the instrument that's in trouble. Right, so the Institute itself it still has funding and is doing a lot of projects, but using the... uh the radio telescope array to actually look for alien signals, that's the part that's being shut down. You've got it, indeed. And uh, the Allen Telescope Array, which, by the way, is uh, uh, an array of uh, 42 metal mushrooms, if you will, uh, each about 20 feet in diameter, is located in the uh, Cascades of Northern California, about 300 miles north of San Francisco. And uh, it's designed, indeed, from the ground up to be optimized for doing this kind of work, trying to eavesdrop on uh, 
cosmic company that might be out there, extraterrestrial life that's not just alive, but is as clever as we are or more so. And was the uh, was the choice to put in 42 uh, antennae, was that purposeful? Was that symbolic? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Douglas Adams, doesn't it? The answer yeah, to everything. Exactly. Uh, no, the the original intention, in fact, it's still the intention, is to make an array of several hundred dishes. The design goal was 350 antennas, uh, but that cost more money. And it turns out that the R&D to build this array was uh, more costly than uh, we had originally thought. That is lamentably true for just about every telescope, radio telescope that I know about. It seems to always cost about pi more than you think it's going to cost. <laughs> but... In any event, we got money from Paul Allen, hence the name, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. Uh, so it's called the Allen Telescope Array. He put in about half of the cost of building the 42 antenna array that we have now. The hope, as I say, is to keep adding antennas. Fortunately, when you build an, an antenna array, you can use it without having to lead it. I mean, if you're building the Brooklyn Bridge, it's really of no use to you until you've finished it. But with an array of antennas, you, every time you add an antenna, the array simply gets more powerful. But you can use it with fewer antennas than you intend for the completed product. What's Paul Allen doing now, and can he write a check? I really well, Rebecca, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure he can write a check. I mean, that's really not the question. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if his hand was broken or something. No, 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 no. He's Well, I, actually, I think at the moment... Uh, He's uh, mostly on kind of a book tour, isn't he? I mean, he has a book out about his early days with Microsoft. But looks, uh, Mr. Allen has been very generous, and uh, he has uh, offered to help us in, in many different ways, including matching grants and things like that. But it's also the case that uh, for Paul Allen, he, he wants other people to step up to the plate. He doesn't want to be the only big player in a project. And uh, I think that uh, if, if we could find another major donor, I think that Paul Allen, you know, I mean, who knows? But uh, he, I think he would look sympathetically upon that. I, I don't know that he will step up to build the whole thing out. I, as I say, my impression of his projects is that he likes other people to get involved. Yeah. So uh, what we're talking about here is the operation cost for the array. Is that yes. correct? And, and what does that cost, by the way? Well, to run the array and pay for the science, the data collection, and all that stuff, you're, you're talking on the order of 2 to $3 million a year, say $2.5 million a year. Okay, so that that's the cost, and uh, two and a half million might be you know a lot for you and me, but that's not terribly expensive when it comes to the cost of operating a major research instrument. So, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And where was that money coming from? Well, the project was done in conjunction or you know cooperatively with the University of California at Berkeley's Radio Astronomy Lab. So they were going to use the array, and they have been using the array for if you will, astronomy research, mapping galaxies or looking for intermittent uh, radio events in the sky and so forth. It's, the array is very well adapted to certain types of research that really can't be done with other radio telescopes. Anyhow, so this is their observatory. I mean, the Hat Creek Observatory has been there for uh, you know over half a century up there in the Cascades of, of Northern California, and they've been running it. And they get money to do that from, of course, just money that comes from the university, and that means from the uh, the residents of the uh, state of California, and also they would get grants from the National Science Foundation. Now, those two sources of funding have been cut way back recently. Uh, everybody in California knows that the state is not in great financial health, 
the National Science Foundation has not given uh, Berkeley as much money for their research. So they don't have the operating funds. They were going to pay for the operations. It's their observatory after all. And we paid for the construction of the instrument. That was the idea. Uh, obviously, we're happy to contribute to the operations too if we had the money, but we don't. We don't have enough. We don't have enough. And so while the construction was essentially all private money, the operations involved these, if you will, sources from taxpayers. Seth, what about the pure maintenance costs? Will the array potentially fall into disarray? Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's in what's called hibernation now. And that means that there's a skeleton staff up there that's uh, busy making sure that, you know, the, the gears get greased or whatever, that the routine maintenance required just to keep things from, you know, falling apart, as you've just suggested, uh, doesn't happen. So that if you do get the money to restart it, you can restart it, and rather quickly, I would imagine. But at some point, you you might run out of the money. I mean, it's going to happen that there's a finite amount of time that you can pay for this kind of hibernation. Hibernation is not free either. The metabolism's not zero, right? So the idea that we're, well, the, the, the situation that we're facing is that we have to find within a matter of months, not years, but months, money to restart the array, or we'll have to you know, make the very hard decision that we're going to take it out of hibernation and just let it go. And uh, at that point, you know, after a while, it really would fall into disarray. And of course, you probably, you know, have to do rather drastic things like get the metal out of there and so forth. But uh, I, I certainly hope it doesn't come to that. And I remain optimistic that it won't, but it could. Seth, what are the reports that the array may be used by the Air Force to help track space debris? Yeah, those are correct. The array has been used by the U.S. Air Force to uh, track space debris and satellites and so forth. They have an obvious interest in doing that. And they pay for that. They use, I don't know, a few tens per, of percent of the time of the array, 20 percent, I don't know, thir- maximum of 30 percent. And, and since they do pay for it, that is a source of income. Now, if the Air Force wants to continue to use the array, they clearly will want to pay for enough operations to make sure that the array is there and operable. So that is, an, that, that, that is a clear source of possible funding to cure this rather unfortunate situation. But on the other hand, you know, the budgets for the military are decided by Congress and, uh, you know, you have to wait for Washington to make up its mind about what it's going to do. And that delay is a, a very difficult thing for us because we can't afford to keep the thing in hibernation mode forever. So it, it's it, partly it's a timing difficulty that we're facing here. So it sounds like you're looking for some big sponsors. Is there any effort to find any grassroots sponsors, like just get a million people to donate a couple dollars, that kind of thing? Yeah, but if everybody in the U.S. would donate three cents, two cents, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, here's mine. Yeah, that, that'd be enough, right? So, uh, indeed, in fact, it could even be one cent, right? One cent would be three million. That would keep it going for another year. It's, it's very hard to collect a one cent donation, but <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but your, your idea is correct. I mean, if you can get a lot of people giving rather small amounts of money, that will do it. And, in fact, uh, you know, this is a, a straightforward uh, uh, announcement of the fact that anybody who goes to the SETI Institute website, which is SETI.org, they will find the mechanism that would allow them to do that. So they can help. Uh, it's also true that, you know, if, if somebody gives a large sum of money, then, of course, you know, that could solve the problem, too. So I, I think uh, all money is fungible here, and it's just a yeah. matter of getting an adequate amount. Maybe you should do a Kickstarter fund like bands do to release their first albums where, you know, everybody promises a certain amount and if you reach two million dollars then everybody gets charged all at once you know that's a rather interesting idea in other words it's a it's a uh, no lose situation for you the donor you don't have to worry that well i gave five bucks but then they didn't raise enough for it to matter anyhow. exactly 
Yeah. yeah, I you know I really like that idea, Rebecca, and, and maybe I'll suggest it here to the. People. All right, yeah, you can you can have that idea for free. Really, I'll tell you what: if that pays off, then we'll pay you. How's that? You can you can pay me off in some sort of Martian dollars when no, no, you here, eventually find. No, no, when the signal is found, we call it the Rebecca signal. There you go. Yeah, the Rebecca okay. signal. Yeah, I was going to ask: is there anything left to be named? Can you? Is yeah, name for sale. array. Can you name that after me? Yeah, you're the 43rd array. Well, we do do that, actually. If you go up to the uh, array, if you just take the time to hop in your car and drive up there now, uh, you'll find that about, I don't know, maybe a fourth of the antennas have names on them. Uh-huh. They're not random names. Uh, or <laughs> they're not names of Greek gods or anything like that. They're just names of people who actually put up enough money to buy a single antenna. And, you know, uh, that was a, I think that was a good idea. Uh, are there other things to be named? Well, there, there are always things you can name, but I mean, but at what level do you name them? Then, now, this this integrated circuit here, that's yours, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Hey, Stephen this Colbert had a yours. treadmill on the ISS named after him, so anything's possible. <laughs> that's right. Wait, wait, Steve, I want to know, where are we on Seth's list? Like, you know, he's probably got 30 people in front of us that he'll call when they find the signal, but are we on the list? <laughs> Well, let me just check it here. Yeah. <laughs> let me see. Wait. Um, page 404. Oh, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're on the list here somewhere, but of course the list is all written in Latin, so I can't do but. <laughs> but with But with the Allen array, though, your ability to survey the sky, though, has accelerated tremendously over previous efforts. Yes. Well, uh, let me give you an example, and I, I think this is a really a good example, too. One of the projects that we were working on and that we will work on if we get the money is called the Kepler Worlds Project. You, you know about NASA's Kepler mission. Mm, this is this mm. telescope that's up there that's you know, designed to find worlds more or less the same size as the Earth and worlds that are not only the same size as the Earth, but they're at the correct distance from their star that they might you know, support liquid oceans. Cool. They might have cool. liquid oceans on their surface and atmosphere. Goldilocks, In other words, Goldilocks zone. Yeah, Goldilocks. Right, these sort of soupy planets. I mean, so the idea is to find, indeed, what fraction of stars, this is the question that the telescope's trying to answer, what fraction of stars have worlds that are very similar to Earth? And we don't know the answer yet because the data are still coming in, but yeah. it looks like it's going to be on the order of a few percent, right? Maybe 1%, maybe 5%, maybe more. But, you know, even at, at 1%, that means that there are four, well, two to four billion with a B, billion Earths, mm. just in our Milky Way galaxy. Now, Kepler has already identified 50 or 60 candidates for habitable worlds, star systems that are known, excuse me, star systems that are known to have worlds that might be somewhat similar to the Earth. So those are really high-grade targets for a SETI search because, of course, if you read about this in the paper, the first question you ask is, well, do any of them have life? And there's no way we can answer that. We have no instrumentation to answer that except to try and eavesdrop on signals. That would require intelligent life, but at least we have that one capability. But only the Allen Telescope Array was really very good at doing that. So, you know, to lose the instrument before, you, before you've really checked out these worlds and the ones that are coming down the pike in the next year or so, you know, that's, a, that's a bit of a, it's like, that's a very lugubrious situation. So, yeah, just when you're getting a lot of high-value targets, the, uh, the scopes are going offline. Sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it, it isn't just that. I mean, when you ask people, is there life out in space? Well, 80% of the population will say yes, because they've gone to the movies often enough to see it, right? And they, mm -hmm. they watch television, whatever. But if you ask scientists, more and more of them would probably say yes as well. I'm sure the majority would. 
simply because look look what's happened in the last you know 15 20 years we found that planets are you know a dime a dozen uh, now we're finding that planets sort of like the earth might be as common as uh, phone poles too right we've learned that life can survive under you know pretty harsh conditions here on earth so that suggests that life is tough and it might spring up even on worlds that aren't quite optimal all these things all these arrows is what i'm saying all these arrows all these data point in the same direction namely that what's happened on this planet's probably not a miracle and yet, just at the point when you learn that and then, you know, you have the technology that could allow you to listen in, uh, that you stopped. I mean, that's a bummer. Yeah. Well, we definitely would like to do what we can to help you out. And uh, so we'll, you know, alert people to the SETI.org website. There are opportunities there to support the Allen Array and the work of, uh, of SETI. You know, what else can we do? Just let us know. Mm. Okay, I really appreciate it, and, and, and indeed, that uh, doing that is what needs to be done. Good. Just make sure we get our name gets bumped up on the list. Mm-hmm. I'll try and do that. I, I'm not sure that probably some government agency keeps this list. All right, Seth. Well, good luck. Uh, keep us updated, and thanks for coming on the show to give us the scoop. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks Seth. Seth. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everybody ready for this week? Oh, yeah. Are we ever not ready? Should be interesting. Item number one. New research finds that people who take vitamin supplements are less healthy because they make other unhealthy choices. Item number two, psychologists have identified a reliable method for selectively reducing traumatic memories in human subjects. And item number three, researchers find that sleep deprivation causes parts of the brain to go to sleep, even in fully awake individuals. Bob, go first. Okay, so uh, people that take are less healthy because they make other unhealthy choices. Um, yeah, I mean, I could, I could kind of support that. I mean, if um, you know they're taking all these sorts of supplements and they think that they, oh, their diet could be a little bit less healthful, because oh, I am taking supplements uh, after all. Reliable method for reducing tra- uh, traumatic memories in humans, uh, human subjects. Hmm. I have a while ago, a long time ago, there was talk of of doing this. Um, I haven't read anything about this lately. But selectively reducing, hmm. yeah, and it's reducing, which is better than a, than if it said you know erasing. Uh, that's possible. Um, um, and then uh, this last one here, this one's interesting. Sleep deprivation causes parts of the brain to go to sleep, even in fully awake individual. Part- oh, I know that you have uh, when you're sleep deprived, you go through those little episodes of micro sleep. Um, but that's a little bit different than what you're saying here. I also know that um, dolphins can, since they can't really fully sleep, uh, which means they would stop moving, they have to, um, half their brain will, will actually fall asleep while the other one stays awake and kind of like in a stupor, but at least they're still semi-awake. So they're never fully, fully asleep. Um, so there is biological precedent, but humans doing that, parts of the brain... To go, what does that even mean for part of a brain to go to sleep, even in fully awake individuals? Yeah, I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna say that sleep is fiction. It's just to me, 
you know, it's just sleeping is an all or nothing thing, even if it's brief. I just am um, having a hard time imagining how only part of the brain can go can go to sleep. It doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to say that one is fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Okay. Uh, for some reason, it's, it, I'm reminded of something we talked about on the show a while back, this idea that people who take vitamin supplements are less healthy because they make other unhealthy choices. That makes perfect sense, and I'm pretty sure we've covered that before. So, I don't know, or maybe I'm hallucinating. Um, but yeah, that one makes perfect sense to me. Psychologists being able to se- selectively reduce traumatic memories. I've seen that before, but it was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Great movie, but as far as I know, um, science fiction. Which leaves us with the idea that uh, sleep deprivation can cause certain parts of your brain to go to sleep. I totally believe this, and I say that as a person who has full conversations in my sleep and um, it takes a while for the person I'm talking to sometimes to realize that I'm asleep, the the brain doesn't all shut down at once to go to sleep. It shuts down in stages and that's why we end up with people who are like me, who sleepwalk, sleep talk. Um, so yeah, I, I, can, I can see that being true. So I'm going to go with the idea that psychologists can selectively reduce traumatic memories as being the fiction. Okay, Jay. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Rebecca. I I happen to know that memories are stored in your brain, um, not so much completely localized, but they're distributed to a certain degree and depending on the type of memory. So I I don't know if traumatic memories, like it seems kind of far-fetched to think that they get stored in a certain part of the brain because they're traumatic. I don't think it works that way. And I don't think that they could just selectively lessen a, a specific memory like that, a traumatic memory. So um, I think that one is definitely the fake. Alrighty, and Evan. I'll take swords for 600. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wrong game. S word. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll keep it short and I'll go with Jay and Rebecca. I, I don't know how you would be able to select out those traumatic memories it seems like it's too selective uh, in order to get the, I, I i get that you know the the highs of life you know both the 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 exciting and happy stuff and the lowest of the lows are kind of i guess burned and put into the folds of your gray matter deeper than other mundane memories i get that but i don't know how you would come up with a method for select for selecting out the traumatic ones only i so got i got some methods yeah, well, you know, not <laughs> all right. Not suitable for the show. I say that one's fiction. Okay, so you all agree with number one that new research finds that people who take vitamin supplements are less healthy because they make other unhealthy choices, and that one is science. Yay. Yep. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we, we definitely have talked before about the fact that there are large studies which show that there's a correlation between worse health outcomes and people who take supplements, but there could be – we speculated about what the reasons could be for the correlation. One big thing would be that people who are unhealthy for whatever reason are taking vitamins because they think that they need to or they think they will help. Uh, but it, but this was a actually a psychological study uh, looking at – and it was experimental study, not observational. So they actually you know had two groups. They, they um, told – one group that they were getting a vitamin and the other group that they were getting a placebo 
but they actually gave placebos to both groups. Ah. But the one group believed. So they're liars. They yes, lie to they, bastards. Yes. Research is based on lying. Yes. So, doctor, so maybe Dr. Oz has something. Hmm. Psychological <laughs> research almost always involves some kind of deliberate deception. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but the people who were get, in one group thought they were getting a multivitamin. And then they you know, put them through different challenges and like, give them various options. The people who thought that they had gotten a multivitamin were more likely – to choose unhealthy meals or they were less likely to engage in exercise uh, and they were more likely to engage in hedonistic activities. Uh, so the thinking here is that you know, if people have done something which they feel is healthy, this results in what's called licensed self-indulgence. They, they feel as if now they have purchased the, the ability or the right or whatever to engage in unhealthy activity. Because they've taken their multivitamin. Very interesting stuff there, Steve. Next. <laughs> All right, number two. Psychologists have identified a reliable method for selectively reducing traumatic memories in human subjects. Bob, you're by yourself in thinking this one is science. The rest of you think this one is the fiction. And this one is the fiction. Oh. oh. Good job. Good job, everyone, Good job. except for Bob. Well that. Bob, a, a rare solo loss for Bob, but yeah. suck it, Bob. That's very right. rare. Yeah, this was based upon a real study uh, published in the Journal of Neuroscience, but this was looking at neurons in a petri dish, and the, crap. They were. <laughs> did you look at the? T- did you get taken in by the title, Bob? This is one of those things where they're looking at aspects of how memory, how long-term memories form. And then some headline writer thought, oh, we could – if you extrapolate this basic science knowledge 20 steps into the future, maybe we'll be able to selectively erase traumatic memories. You know, It was one of those deals. It's like the invisibility cloak oh. thing. It's like, no, yeah. it's, this is just one bit of basic science knowledge, which is interesting and involves memory, but you can't extrapolate to any particular – Maybe this knowledge will lead to you – know, no, it's that, that, that was BS. But if you just read the headline, you would be taken in. All right, this leads us to number three. Researchers find that sleep deprivation causes parts of the brain to go to sleep, even in fully awake individuals, and that one is science. I said individuals because this is actually based on rat research, not, not done in humans. Ah, uh, tricky. Uh, yeah, but uh, they did find that when they kept rats awake, that even when the rats – when they kept – yeah, they, they deprived them of sleep, and then they used uh, EEGs uh, to look at the various – the functioning of different parts of their brain that, that collections of neurons would just shut down individually. The rat gave every appearance of being fully awake, but parts of the brain would shut down and go to sleep, and wow. that would impair the rat's functioning. So, no kidding. Yeah. So th- this, they think that this could be an explanation, a physiological explanation for why people – are uh, have impaired functionality when they are sleep deprived. It's because you know. Well, no shit. Steve. <laughs> it's, it's not just that your whole brain is sort of sluggish. I mean, it could be that as well. But that's sort of the two different ways you could think about this. That just sort of the whole brain is slowed and just functioning at half speed. But it, this is showing that actually parts of the brain are actually completely shut down. And uh, you may not even. The other thing is you may not even feel tired. That you may mm. feel totally awake, you may not be sleepy, but parts of your brain are are selectively taking naps and and not working, and therefore not contributing to the overall function of your brain, and therefore you may have impaired cognition and functionality. 
Jay, do you have a quote this week? Yeah, hold on. Let me just save my Minecraft game real quick. What? <laughs> Give me a break. My friends, the quote this week, sent in by a man named Derek Carmichael, and this quote was also uh, found in Michael Shermer's book when I did a search for it. So it's a, it's a good Which quote. Which book? No, this was in uh, Shermer's Why People Believe Weird Things. Haha. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, thinking is skilled work. It is not true that we are naturally endowed with the ability to think clearly and logically without learning how or without practicing. People with untrained minds should no more expect to think clearly and logically than people who have never learned and never practiced can expect to find themselves good carpenters, golfers, bridge players, or pianists. Alfred Mander! Pianist. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a good quote. I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of Minecraft, Rebecca <laughs> and I came up with a really good idea. Yeah. We want to we want to know if anyone <laughs> Thank you Steve. <laughs> this is very exciting. You know, it's my new fascination and the thing I spend most of my free time. And of You're course welcome. that's Minecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, Rebecca got me hooked on this lousy stinking game <laughs> that Mine. just it sucks away your life but it feels good as the the life is bleeding out just of like you. How they say um, that about vampires. Oh, you call it Minecraft. <laughs> so yeah. what we want is we want to know if anybody out there who's who enjoys playing the game wants to host a Minecraft SGU based server. Yeah, and it has to be big and ready to handle, you know, I'm guessing that at least a couple a hundred of you want to play, so it should at least handle like a couple of dozen so we can get we want as many listeners to play along with us as possible. So Yeah, and I guess the idea here would be um a mostly friendly server where it would be build oriented, where we would build skeptically and skeptically themed and SGU themed builds. Yeah, or or just you know whatever oh, <laughs> skulls <laughs> with lava pits, whatever. I don't care. Yeah, or anything cool or science fictiony or whatever. Skulls, yeah. but um, likes that. Yeah, guys, you know what next week is? My birthday. May something or other. That's first, right. First week in no. May. Oh. It's not my birthday, but it could be. <laughs> it is. Our six-year anniversary. Oh, what? wow! Wow! I didn't, I didn't get you guys anything. I hope you don't hate me. <laughs> this for is that. ridiculous. That makes me feel old. You still got what a week. That, a, you still got a week. Clocks? Do I have to get you clocks or something? What's what is six years? I don't know. Headphones? New headphones? The molybdenum. Molybdenum. Anniversary. I don't know. Has any other podcast ever reached a six-year anniversary? I don't think anybody knows. Trailblazing. I don't know. We are like seriously ancient in in internet terms. This is an announcement uh, regarding Skeptic Camp Denver, which is happening Saturday, May seventh, at nine a.m. in the Cobell Room, Leeds School of Business, University of Colorado in Boulder. Joe Anderson will be emceeing the event. And if you want more details on this, go to skepticamp.org. S k e p t i c a m p dot o r g. Thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thank you. Thank Steve. you, Steve. Surely. Good night. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website. 
or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>